And once again, good morning. Good to see everybody. If you were not here last week, we started a study. Didn't get very far. Didn't miss a whole lot. But uh, we started a study through the Gospel of John. So can I have you please turn there? And while you're doing that, let me just say, we kind of recap from last time. Uh, As we said last week, the main purpose for which John wrote his gospel was so that unbelievers would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Savior of the world and that by believing would have eternal life in his name. Now, of course, John knew that only the true Christ could save us from our sins and give us eternal life. And because of it, he spends the first 18 verses of his gospel introducing us to the true Jesus. Scholars call this 18-verse introduction the prologue. The prologue. You know, even in the Apostle John's day, there had already come numerous people claiming to be the Christ of God. And these false Christs had led many astray. Therefore, John opens his gospel by giving us eight attributes or distinguishing signs of the true Christ, you know, so that no one would mistake an imposter for the genuine Christ of God, Jesus Christ. And uh, I'll just go through these quickly, and we won't spend a lot of time on some of them because they're pretty self-explanatory, but there's eight of them. And uh, they go like this, the eternal pre-existence of Christ. Number two, the equality of Christ with God. Number three, the oneness of Christ with God. Number four, the omnipotence of Christ. Number five, the life of Christ. Number six, the herald of Christ. Number seven, the light of Christ. And number eight, the incarnation of Christ. And as I said, some of those we'll spend a little more time on than others, but it will move quickly. And again, let me just say this. That, as we said last time, since there is only eternal life in the true Christ, Jesus Christ, you know, stands the reason that Satan would try to trick people into accepting a counterfeit Christ, a false Christ, who although, who, although believed in, cannot save them. Therefore, I'm calling these messages on John's prologue to his gospel, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? <laughs> kind of taken from that little game show we talked about last time, to tell the truth. Will the real Jesus please stand up? Now, the study of Christ from Scripture is what the, theolo- is what the theologians refer to as Christology. So John is going to give us a little crash course in Christology. So we'll be thinking of that as we go. And can I just say this? And the only reason I'm going to say it up front is because somebody after first service told me that when I first started to get into these points and the theology of it all, He started to get kind of bored and all, and then all of a sudden the Lord put it in my heart to say something that he shared with me, turned it all around for him, and that is this. Those of you in this room, most of you here know everything I'm about to say, although maybe you couldn't go to Scripture and prove why you believe these things about Jesus, all right? You have the benefit of 2,000 years of Christianity. Imagine you were John's audience, the first century pagan Greco-Roman world for the most part. They knew nothing of the true God, really, or God was starting to reveal to them, obviously, the church was born and the message was going out. 
But I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a moment and realize that what we take for granted, the doctrine that we have come to, we've grown up with, they didn't have any idea about. So John is being very meticulous in presenting to them what I'm about to present to you from what he wrote, okay? And remember this, guys. I know we live in, a, in an age where, not you, I'm not speaking to you particularly. I'm just talking about the Church of Jesus Christ in general. There's a lot of biblical illiteracy in the Church of Jesus Christ today, much of it fueled by the, by the attitude, well, I don't need to know this stuff, all this deep stuff, theological, doctrinal stuff. Doctrine's bad anyways. A lot of churches are embracing that. Divides. We need to bring people together. Well, how do you do that? With experiences. Oh, okay. Well, that won't be manipulated by the devil at all. I mean, you know, he's, you know, I mean, he's the master of experience and feeling. But go ahead. Go down that road, okay? Because people want to feel today. They don't want to think. They want to feel. They want to emote. Well, and that's why they're getting so deceived. So we want to be good stewards of all that God has given to us. He has given to us his word. We want to get into it. We want to know it. We want to have a working knowledge of the very things we believe, but can't maybe articulate to an unbeliever why we believe what we believe or where in the Bible we get it from. So, okay, <laughs> I've said that to cover myself so that now, you know, you'll be, you'll be excited to receive what we're going to talk about, all right? So the first point in Christology that John brings up is in verse 1, the beginning part, and in verse 2, what we'll call the eternal pre-existence of Jesus Christ. John 1, at the very beginning, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. As we saw last time, the Word is being used by John as a title for Christ, but why? Why not just call him Jesus? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit writing through John had his reasons for calling Jesus the Word, who is the Word, by the way. And there was a reason why the Holy Spirit had John call him the Word. You see, in Greek, uh, in Greek, the word John uses for the Word. The Word is logos. Logos, not logos. That's a mispronunciation. It's logos, okay? A concept having rich roots in both Jewish and Greek thought. You see... Greek philosophers, in attempting to understand the relationship between the divine, whatever that was, and the universe, spoke of the logos as the power that set the world going in perfect order and keeps it going in perfect order, or in other words, to quote them, the ultimate reason that controls all things. Isn't it interesting today we've kind of gotten back to this pagan mindset? Here people talk about the universe. The universe told me. The universe protects me. As if the universe is a person. See, they made the universe, the creation, a living thing that spoke and felt and thought. Like today, people are worshiping the creation. Why? Because they don't want to really worship the creator. The creation is amoral and impersonal. I can worship that as a deity because that deity makes no demands on my life. That deity doesn't tell me what's right or wrong. I can do whatever I want worshiping that God. We're back to those pagan roots today. The Jews, being the people of God, took the Greek concept of logos one step further, whereas Plato said behind every 
thing, there's a perfect thought, lagas. The Jews said that behind every perfect thought, there must be a perfect thinker. Now, John is pulling both of these groups together and is saying to Jews and Greeks in the opening statement of his gospel, for centuries you've been talking and writing about the word, the logos. Now I want to tell you who he is. He's got their attention, believe me. And, and with that, John goes on to introduce his readers to the word. Not just a philosophy, but a personality. This would have especially impacted the, his Jewish readers since the rabbis often thought of God in terms of his word as in the word of God, right? In the minds of the Jewish people, God and his word were one. In other words, to know the word of God was to know God himself. Now, this was something that Jesus, Jesus would later confirm to his disciples when he said to them, I, the word, and the Father are one. John 10, verse 30. We'll get to that in a couple of years. Um, <laughs> no, it won't take that long. A year and a half, maybe. Uh, it, but in verse 3, though, of John chapter 1, um, John's going to use the title, The Word, to connect Jesus to the physical creation of all things. But for right now, he's using it to talk about the eternal preexistence of Christ to the creation. Now, please, don't lose me. Um, I, I just want you to, to, you know, I mean, you don't have to memorize this, but at least think it through and have it in your heart somewhere. Um, you see, when John starts his gospel with the words, in the beginning, followed by was the word, well, that immediately takes us back to the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth, right? In Genesis 1.1, as I just said, those words are connected to the creation of the physical universe. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. But whereas Genesis starts with the physical creation and moves us forward in time, listen. John begins his gospel back before time and the physical universe existed to teach the pre-existence of Christ to the creation. When John says, in the beginning was the word, he uses the imperfect of the Greek word emi, emi, which expresses the idea of, listen, continuous, timeless existence. This is in contrast to the word he used for was in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Both of those words are the same in the Greek. It's the Greek word agenita, and it means to come into existence or to begin to be. This is so important to John that you and I and everyone else reading his gospel understands that Jesus Christ, the word, has always existed, that he had no beginning. In other words, he was not a created being. It's so important for John to communicate this because, folks, everything rides on it. We'll talk about that more in a moment. That in the Greek, he leaves out the definite article. What do you mean? Well, verse 1, actually, we, we read it in our Bibles, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was definite article. Verse 2, in our Bibles, it reads, uh, he was in 
the beginning with God. Again, definite article. In the Greek, here's what John actually wrote. In beginning was the word. And he was in beginning with God. You say, what does that mean? Well, don't miss this. John is saying that the physical, physical creation had a beginning. Verse 3, again, to come into being. But not the word of God, Jesus Christ. Verse 1, emi, timeless, continuous existence. By leaving out the definite article, guys, John is telling us that he doesn't have a definite beginning in mind when he talks about Christ's existence. If John had used the definite article in the beginning, we might have been misled into thinking he was referring to the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, right? It would have immediately taken us back there and connected what he was saying to that very first verse in the Bible. And um, that was the beginning uh, in Genesis 1-1, when everything in the physical universe was created. And if we would have thought about Genesis 1-1, when John began his gospel in the beginning, it might have led us to believe that Jesus himself had a beginning at the same time as the physical creation. Isn't that what John's talking about? In the beginning, when all things were created, then he talks about Jesus. Oh, maybe Jesus was one of those created things. Of course, if Jesus had been created, he would have been something less than God because God had no beginning. And so, in an effort to teach the eternality of Christ or his preexistence to the physical creation, he leaves out the definite article and just begins his gospel with the words, in beginning was the word, which would have immediately beg the question in our mind, what beginning? What beginning? And that's John's point, guys. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what beginning you choose. Pick any beginning you want. Jesus already existed. As far back as you want to go before the physical creation, a thousand years, 10,000 years, 10 billion years, 10 trillion years, no matter how far back into eternity past your beginning begins, the word already was. So John wants us to be clear that the Word, Jesus Christ, already existed before everything was created. Now, why is this such an important point for John to communicate to us? Because It's important because John is presenting the divinity of Christ by, first of all, talking about the preexistence of Christ to the creation of the material universe, or in other words, that Jesus Christ is eternal. He's eternal. This, of course, is consistent with other verses in the Bible, such as the one we're very familiar with around Christmas time. We heard a lot, right? Micah 5, verse 2, speaking of Messiah, when he is finally born. Uh, but you, Bethlehem, in the county of Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, not a very big place, it's a little town, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, guys, this completely refutes what is known as the Arian heresy. Arius taught that Jesus was a created being, that he was greater than a mere mortal man, 
but less than Almighty God. This is the heresy that Jehovah's Witnesses have embraced. And I'm going to beat up on them for a while this morning because they really do a number on the first few verses of John 1. Okay, so they're asking for it. But this is the heresy they've embraced. Well, John, in his condensed course on Christology, he first of all tells us that Jesus wasn't a created being. He has eternally existed. And secondly, that he isn't less than God. He is equal with Almighty Jehovah God. That is the next point, the second point in our outline of the attributes that John wants us to understand about the true Christ. He talks about the equality of Christ with God. The very first part of verse 1 in the beginning was the Word. And then he says, and the Word was with God. The Greek is interesting. Prostanthean, it means to be toward God. The Word was toward God. What does that mean exactly? Well, it's a Greek way of saying that the Word was toward God in the sense of being face-to-face -face with eye to eye with, on the same level with, or in other words, equal with God. Here's where John gives us our second lesson in Christology. That Jesus not only has always existed, but he has always been equal with God. In other words, Jesus is not just a mighty God, but something less than almighty Jehovah God. He is and always has been equal with almighty God. And again, guys, this refutes Arian and Jehovah's Witness heresy concerning Christ. They have a different Jesus. Remember 2 Corinthians 11? We talked about this. Paul says it. Some people come preaching another Jesus and a different gospel. There's a lot of groups out there who are preaching Jesus. He's not our Jesus. That's why we have to know this stuff. And the Jehovah's Witnesses are running around preaching Jesus. He's not the Jesus of the New Testament. He's not our Jesus. Groups like the JWs try to tell us that Jesus never claimed to be equal uh, with Jehovah God, God the Father as we know him. However, guys, that simply isn't true. It simply isn't true. It was the hallmark. It wasn't, it wasn't something he proclaimed once in a corner. This was the hallmark of his ministry, going around proclaiming equality with his heavenly Father. Turn to John 5. John 5, look at verse 18. Therefore the Jews, now in John's gospel, I'll tell you up front, when you see the term the Jews, it's talking about the Jewish leadership, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and so on. Okay, not just the average Jew. Most of the Jews love Jesus. This is the Jewish establishment. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. But here's what the Greek is saying. But he also said that God was his father, continually making himself equal with God. This was something he constantly declared. His equality with the father. The equality of Jesus with God is a doctrine that is stated throughout the New Testament. That Jehovah's Witnesses challenge this by bringing up John 14, 28. Please turn there. See, they will challenge you if you try to tell them that Jesus, uh, you know, and uh, is equal with God the Father, whom they call Jehovah God. 
who is Jehovah God, but that's how they break it down. And they will take you to John 14, 28, where Jesus himself said, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Up oh, there you go. Out of Jesus' own mouth. They say that proves that Jesus is a lesser God and not equal with Jehovah God. Spike the ball in the end zone, we win. Well, don't spike that ball too quick. Okay? You see, when Jesus said, My Father is greater than I, he was speaking in terms of his earthly mission. Turn to Philippians 2. I'm going to read it to the NLT. You can follow along in your translation. Starting with verse 6, Philippians 2, verse 6. says, Though he, Jesus, was God, he did not think, listen, equality with God as something to cling to, to be held on to. Okay? This is Paul writing now, talking, first of all, about how Jesus was in heaven. Of course, he's always been equal with God, the Father, the Spirit. They're all together God. Um, but he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. I'll read to you one more. You don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made, look, a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone guys when Jesus said my father is greater than I he was speaking in terms of authority you see Jesus Christ left heaven and all the privileges that he had as God he left his throne and became one of us, a man, made a little lower than the angels, placing himself under his father's authority to accomplish the mission of redemption his father sent him to fulfill. In that regard, the father was greater than him in the same way as any one of you men and women. Maybe you have been in the military. I'm sure there's somebody here who has been in the military. When you entered, joined the military, you voluntarily placed yourself under the authority of a commanding officer slash officers. Our U.S. Constitution says that as an American citizen, you and that commanding officer are equal. But for the mission that you have joined up to be a part of, you voluntarily place yourself in authority to that commanding officer. He or she is greater than you in authority, not in essence and being. You're both human beings, Citizens of the United States, you're equal. Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Spirit are all part of the Godhead, the Trinity. They are all together one God. In that regard, absolutely equal. But Jesus voluntarily placed himself under the Father's authority for his mission and said that the Spirit would come placing himself under Jesus' authority and the Father's authority to fulfill the mission. This was all in terms of the mission of redemption, right? The mission of redemption. Again, Jesus Christ is not saying that his father is greater than him 
in essence and being because they're both equal, being a part of the Godhead, the same God, same Trinity, and so on. Now, guys, John's first two statements concerning Christ prepare us for and lead naturally into his third and climactic statement at the end of verse 1, and the word was God. Let's call this point the oneness of Christ and God. Let me read the whole verse. Uh, verse 1 again, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This third lesson in Christology flows naturally from the previous one because, listen, if Jesus is equal with God, that means he has to be God. If Jesus is equal with God, it would have to mean that Jesus is God. On this point, there is absolutely no confusion or ambiguity. No one can be equal with God who isn't himself God. That's just the way it is. Not only has Jesus always existed, and not only has he always been equal with God, Jesus is God. Now, here once again is where the Jehovah's Witnesses conveniently add an A, an indefinite article to their New World Translation. Ours reads, and the word was God. Theirs reads, and the word was a God. The word was a God. A God. This makes the text agree with their Arian theology that Jesus was a mighty God, but not almighty Jehovah God. I've asked them, so, you're, so you, you guys are polytheistic. Oh, no, we're not polytheistic. Well, you got two gods. Is one of them false? Is Jehovah a false God? No. Is Jesus a false God? No, absolutely not. Then you got two gods. You're polytheistic. Well, we're not polytheistic. Well, then you better go back and recheck your theology. Because if you got the Father, Jehovah God is a real God, and Jesus is a lesser but real God, you're polytheistic then. But anyway, that's a different subject. Um, but again, by inserting the A, it, it makes the text, John 1, 3, agree with the Arian theology that Jesus was a mighty God, but not almighty Jehovah God. And guys, there is not a Greek scholar or Greek lexicon in the world that would agree with that translation. I was telling first service, several years ago I was listening uh, to a study by a gentleman who was a JW at one time got saved and has now got a ministry to Job's Witnesses. And he was talking about a couple of guys that uh, he had known, and they were uh, leaders in the, in the Watchtower, Job's Witness uh, movement, organization. And, you know, they heard Christians hit him with this, that, you know, that, uh, you know, there's no justification for an A being inserted into John 1.3. The word was a God. No, no, no. Uh, the Watchtower did that because it went against uh, what was really there, went against their theology and so on and so forth. Jesus is not a God, he is God. And they were so upset that Christians kept hitting them with this, they decided to go to seminary, study Greek, so they could prove to everybody that John 1.3 is accurately translated and the word was a God. Went to seminary, learned the Greek, began to study the manuscripts, and the truth set them free. They realized they had been lied to. There's not a Greek manuscript in the world that would substantiate, and the word was a, a god. They left the watchtower, they became evangelical Christians, and now they've joined those who are going out trying to deliver Jehovah's Witnesses from this error. And that's what it is, guys. It's error. Now, 
there are those who claim, I, I've actually talked to a few, maybe you have too. There are those, and you're going to run into all kinds of people out there in our world today. We're living in a post-Christian age. People still have the vestiges of Christianity, but they are so clueless as to what Christians really believe and so on and so forth. Some say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That Jesus never claimed to be God. You Christians, see, you got it wrong. Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't know what Bible they're reading. But let me just direct you to one passage. John 10. John 10. And we'll just pick it up in verse 30. Jesus, again, is talking to these religious leaders there in Jerusalem. He says to them, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews, Jewish leadership, took up stones again to stone him. Now, we, we, wanna, we really owe a debt of gratitude to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. As we read our Bible, sometimes we might be prone to read over something that was important, and we don't you know, think about it, but the Pharisees always draw our attention back to it because they pick up stones to kill Jesus. So whenever you see the Pharisees picking up stones to kill Jesus, stop I missed something important. Go back. Check it out again. Okay? I and my father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. Again, the Greek is, Go around continually making yourself God. Again, that little something he whispered to somebody in a corner somewhere. This was the hallmark of his ministry, claiming to be God. Okay? You say, well, is this important for me to really get my mind around? Of course it is. It's not only an important doctrine, it is an essential doctrine. Do you want to go to heaven? You got to believe this. Turn to John 8. Not only is this doctrine important, the deity of Christ... That he is not just a God, he is the God of the universe. Not only is this doctrine important, guys, it's essential for salvation. Look at John 8, 24. He says, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. That's another way of saying you will die and go to hell. If you do not believe that I am, what? He, okay? You will die in your sins. But the he is in italics, isn't it? which means it does not appear in the Greek. It was added by, added by the translators for clarity. Now, they did this at different points in their translation. Sometimes it does bring clarity. It does help us to understand the passage better. A lot of times it messes it up. Here's one of those times. What Jesus actually said was, remember we talked about Jesus claiming to be the great I Am? Remember the name of God? God said to Moses, tell, go to Israel, tell him, uh, I'm going to deliver them from Egyptian bondage. Moses said, well, Lord, I don't even know your name. Who, am I, who should I say is sending me? Tell them I am is sending you. The name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh. We talked about that last week, right? Jesus called himself I am numerous times. That was the name of God. John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. He's, no wonder they picked up stones at different times to kill him. In their minds, he was blaspheming. He was claiming to be Almighty God. Surprise. That's exactly who he was. 
and is. If Jesus is, now we're moving on, okay, just so you have that. And again, guys, this is essential for salvation that you believe that Jesus Christ is God. In fact, there are two doctrines that are non-negotiable. We can disagree on a lot of non-essential things, doctrinally speaking. Again, we can disagree on the timing of the rapture, if the gifts of the Spirit are still around for today. We can disagree as Christians on a lot of things. won't affect our eternity in the least. There are two essential doctrines we have to believe to get to heaven. Okay, One is that Jesus is God. Not a God, one of many gods. Jesus is Almighty Jehovah God, number one. Number two, that he rose from the dead bodily from the grave. It's interesting that all the cults will attack one or both of those doctrines. That Jesus is not Almighty God, he's a God. That he didn't really rise from the dead bodily, he rose as a spirit but left the body in the grave. These are essential. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord God Almighty, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, bodily speaking, you will be saved. If you don't believe in those things, you won't be saved. Now look, if Jesus is Almighty God, then it stands to reason that he is the creator of all things. And that's absolutely true. And becomes the fourth lesson in Christology that John wants to teach us. That Jesus is omnipotent. The word omnipotent means all-powerful. Jesus Christ is God. God is all-powerful. How do we know Jesus was all-powerful or is? Because he demonstrated it in that he created all things. Number four on our outline, the omnipotence of Christ. Verse three, John said all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now guys, listen to this carefully. Look at the text uh, carefully. There are only two categories mentioned here. Creator and creation. That's all you got. Okay? Creator and creation. John says, Jesus Christ created all things. And apart from him, nothing else was made of all that was created. John couldn't have made it any clearer. The true Jesus wasn't created. He is creator, God, who created everything that was created, both visible and invisible, without exception. This was also echoed by Paul and others. But Paul, affirming the deity of Christ in Colossians 1, presenting a little statement of faith himself, turn to Colossians 1. In Colossians 1, we'll look at verse 16. Stay there, because we're going to be looking at verse 15 and 17 as well. But Paul is echoing this statement, affirming the deity of Christ. Colossians 1.16, For by him, how many things were created? All things that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, those are rankings of angels. All things were created through him, and hold on to this next thought, we'll come back to it, and for him. Now, if Jesus, listen, this is not profound, but a lot of folks are missing it, I don't know how. 
If Jesus created all things, well, then he himself couldn't be a created thing, right? I mean, if he created all things, he himself could not have been a created thing. And if Jesus had been created, well, he couldn't be Almighty God. Because God, the true God, is eternal. And never had a beginning. He was never born. He was never created. He is eternally existed. But this contradicts the Jehovah's Witnesses' theology once again. And so in their New World Translation, they tried to make the scriptures once again agree with their theology. And in so doing, here's how they have translated Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all other things were created. All other things, see? And they'll point to Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And they will say to you, well, you see, this proves that Jesus was the first thing created and that he then created all other things things the greek word for firstborn there is prototokos and it can be translated firstborn in the sense of, in the sense of chronology mary brought forth her firstborn son yes jesus was her firstborn son she went on to have four others matthew 13 55 gives you their names jesus was chronologically mary's firstborn son but I think primarily it's the second way that word can be translated that even applies to that scripture. Because the word prototokos can also mean first in rank or first in the sense of superior in position. The preeminent one is the idea. Being called the firstborn over all creation simply means that of all who have ever been born on earth, Jesus Christ is superior in position to them all. In fact, Colossians 1 goes on to say he's the firstborn from the dead, right? I think that's used twice in Scripture. But he was not the first one chronologically ever raised from the dead. Yet people in the Old Testament were raised from the dead. You had three in the New Testament that are recorded, Lazarus being one of them, that were raised from the dead before Jesus. But of all those who were born on the earth, all those who have been raised from the dead or will ever be raised from the dead, Jesus is the prototokos. He is the preeminent one. He is superior in position to all the others. We'll talk more about the incarnation next time. But remember that when Jesus was born of Mary, that's when he entered the human race as one of us, our kinsman redeemer. But he has always existed as the word. Right? Again, Micah 5.2, from old, from everlasting, Jesus Christ, the Word, has always existed. And when the Father, through the Spirit, impregnated Mary's womb with the seed of God, nine months later, he was born on the earth in a physical form, but he's always existed before that. That's not when he, agenita, uh, came into existence or began to be. He is the Ami, the one who has always lived. He's always existed. One last thing and we'll close. Since we're hanging out in Colossians 1, 
Let's just read verses 16 and 17 again. I'll just start in the middle of verse 16, and then we'll close. Paul says, All things were created through him, and what? For him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The Greek is literally are held together. Now, if you're talking about the creation, this is important. Because I believe it was in the 1800s, a man, well, he's um, the one they, they, they say discovered this. I'm sure it was something that others knew of before him. But it was called Coulomb's Law of Electricity. How electricity, like charges, repel, right? You've all taken the horseshoe magnets. You've got two of them. You put them on a table, and you line up positive with positive, negative with negative, and what happens? You try to push them together, and they what? They want to push away, right? Because like charges uh, repel, and uh, uh, unlike charges, opposites attract. We know that the physical universe is made up of atoms. Atoms are made up of a nucleus containing neutrons and protons, and then orbited by one or more electrons. Atoms are the building blocks of all of matter, right? All the physical universe are, is made up of atoms. Here's the problem, and scientists still don't know why. They've come up with some ridiculous explanations. They don't understand why in the, in the nucleus of an atom you have neutrons, which are neg negative, uh, neutrally charged particles, and protons, which are positively charged particles. The nucleus has got numerous protons. Why aren't they pushing away from each other? Why aren't they splitting the atom? We know the tremendous power uh, in the atom, right? The, the amount of nuclear material that was found in the bomb dropped on Hiroshima was about the size of a dime. The, the power that is released when an atom is split is absolutely mind-boggling. Why is, a is the nucleus of an atom contain all these protons and they're not pushing each other away so that the atom splits and everything is wiped out. Because the Bible says the one who created all things by the word of his power is holding all things together. And remember one thing, the power to hold together the atom has to be greater than the power that's released when it's split. We serve a pretty impressive God. Now, Peter tells us, 2 Peter 3, there's coming a day when the Lord is going to let go. You imagine the nuclear material the size of a dime, what it did to Hiroshima? Can you imagine a nuclear bomb the size of the universe? When Jesus lets go and all those protons begin to repel each other and every atom in the universe divides and splits, the power will be so incredible, Peter says, that... Everything is going to be vaporized in a millisecond, and elements will be burned, will be incinerated by a zillion degree heat. After God completely wipes out the universe as we know it, he is going to recreate the heavens and the earth, give us a new city to create a new city called New Jerusalem, and that's going to be where we're going to spend eternity, right? Because this fall, the present universe is fallen. It's part of the fall. And Jesus came to redeem those who were willing, but the rest of the creation remains, you know, subject to the fall. It, it's corrupted. So God doesn't patch it up. He just destroys it and starts over. He gives us a perfect universe to live in that sin is never defiled. Now let's make this personal. We'll close. 
Jesus Christ created all things. Are you a created thing here this morning? Of course you are. He created you. For what purpose? For his glory. He, he, all things were created through him and for him. For him. Jesus Christ is the one who created you. He created you for his glory. People say, well, I don't think that's fair. Why, why, why do I have to live for Jesus' glory? I, I want to live for my own glory. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to live for Jesus. Well, you can do that. God never says you have to. He's inviting you to live for him, be a part of his kingdom, one of his kids. Let me just tell you this, though. If Jesus isn't holding your life together because you belong to him, your life is coming apart. Oh, maybe not right now as we speak. I'm telling you, your life is coming apart. And it's going to be made obvious eventually. And ultimately, if you don't give your heart to Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior, you will spend eternity separated from him. Something that he does not want because he came down to die that you wouldn't have to go to hell forever. I know people say, well, this is part of why they don't want to turn their life over to Christ. You know, I can handle my own life. I don't need God. I can do it. I'm strong enough. Listen, it takes a strength greater than yours to hold your life together, just like it takes a strength greater than the atoms to hold it together. People think, I can do it. I can, I can live my life. I, I don't need God. I'm telling you, you do need God. You need Jesus Christ to come into your heart and take control. You need to do that. Because until you do, your I have, I've been minister almost 40 years. I've been doing this a long time. I can't tell you how many lives, families, marriages, etc., are coming apart or have come apart completely disintegrated because one or both people in that marriage would not give their life to Christ. They were going to do their own thing, do it their way. And I've seen their lives slowly destruct. It's very sad. We are living in a nation where people are destroying themselves through alcohol, drugs, pornography, adultery, whatever you name it. All because they have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ who made all things, including them. And he made them for all of us for his glory. Guys, you want to have a fulfilled life? Give your life to Jesus and, and live out the purpose for which you were really created. Because in so doing, bringing him glory... You will know such joy you won't even be able to handle it because you'll have purpose and meaning. And God is inside and he's giving you strength and he's giving you uh, every day he's bearing fruit through you, the love, the joy, the peace. There is no greater life lived than a life lived for Jesus. So just take that home with you, okay? I'm not even sure that counts for our John study. Um, that's just a little extra. <laughs> but you know, we're in the neighborhood, Colossians 1, he made all things. Okay, so let's look at what Paul said about why he created all things, people, for his glory. And may God give us grace, and even if you are a Christian, to go home and say, Lord, I've been kind of living for you, but kind of living for myself. I want to live for you with all my heart now.
And that's something that we need to all, this week of fasting and prayer, we need to think about and pray about. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the word, who came down from heaven, <laughs> the divine thinker. Behind every divine thought, there is a divine thinker. Well, yes, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to yield to you every day of our lives as our Master and Savior and Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for your great grace. We thank you, Lord, that before we knew you, our lives were coming apart. But Lord, after we gave our heart to you, you pulled it all together. You made us new creations. And Lord, what a joy to live for you now. Give us grace to do it, Lord, in these dark days, to be lights. Father, we ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.